Hi, it's uh, Dan here, just with a note at the top of the show. Kasia's currently at the Jorvik Viking Centre, I think, hanging out, as is her want. I just wanted to say on behalf of me and Kasia and our wonderful producer, Mr. Beatnik, Nick Wilson, that uh, we really appreciate you joining us on this, can I say, journey over the last nine, nine or so episodes. It's the final episode of Series 1 you're about to hear, which we recorded a little while ago, but is really a trip down memory lane anyway to, to 2012. Oh boy, what a cursed object it is we have for you this week. Uh, but we just wanted to thank you for joining us um, in this first series. We had an enormous amount of fun making it and we are so full of ideas for Series 2 that we're already thinking about which ones to include in Series 3 and Series 4. It's going to take us a few weeks or so to get them finished. And in the meantime, if you were interested in joining us on our Patreon, we're going to have some special treats coming up there beyond the monthly show notes that we give you anyway. And if you do want to join our Patreon, it's as little as £4 a month. It helps us to make the episodes because it does take quite a bit of time prepping, researching, controversially we do actually research the episodes and uh recording and editing them if you can't afford to join our patreon that's absolutely fine as well but do tell some mates about it tweet about it why not abuse the privilege of your local neighborhood whatsapp group by telling some neighbors about it but either way thanks for joining us and thanks for listening we hope it's only going to be a matter of weeks rather than many months before we get series two ready for you do keep sending us the cursed objects you find online and in the real world on Twitter at Cursed Objects UK or on Instagram at Cursed Objects UK. And otherwise, just keep it cursed. We can't wait to join you again for Series 2. Take care. Welcome to Cursed Objects. I'm Dan Hancocks. And I'm Dr. Kasha T. Uh, this week we are going to be talking about something that I've brought in. How to describe this bad mm. boy. Wenlock the police officer figurine. Now those words won't mean a great deal to most of you joined together, I imagine. Uh, some of you may remember that Wenlock was one of the names of the two Olympic mascots for the London 2012 Games. Wenlock and Mandeville. With their, with their names collectively, Mandeville being the Paralympic Games mascot, are two steel, apparently originally, anyway, two steel figurines that were cast from drops left over from the forging of the steel girders for the Olympic Stadium. That's their origin story. Their origin story is a not really what strikes you first what strikes you first is they have one eye and they're fucking terrifying <laughs> okay and that's true of them in their natural outfits but it's even more true in the form that of the object that i've brought in today which is a police officer wenlock so you've got a one-eyed four-limbed creature of some description and it doesn't it's good i've got to be clear here when i say one-eyed it's not wearing an eye patch its whole face is an eye. There is nothing else on its face. It doesn't have a mouth. It doesn't have a nose. It's just a giant fucking eyeball in a police uniform. A classic British Bobby's uniform with, you know, the old-fashioned sort of bowl-shaped uh, helmet. And I discovered this in the official 2012 merch shop in Heathrow Airport in 2011. The existence of the shop fascinated me in its own right. It's sort of part of that marketing of of Britain to people who are just arriving or just leaving, I suppose, because it's for the departure lounge, uh, just leaving and wanted to take sort of a memento of Britain back with them. And here you have this insanely dystopian and unnerving kid's toy, basically. Yeah. It's a figurine that's about sort of four or five centimetres high, I would say. There's a cuddly version as well, I've discovered online. Terrifying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so today we're going to use this as an opportunity to talk about the Olympic Games, the specifically the London 2012 Games. We're going to talk about the role of 
objects and sort of merchandise and capitalism, I suppose, in the the Olympic Games as a whole, because, uh, you know, here is something that's presented as this very pure celebration of sport, community, global kind of togetherness, even while through competition. I mean, there's loads of really schlocky rhetoric that goes along with the Olympics, right? And I think we want to unpick some of that. And then we're going to talk about the Olympic opening ceremony in the 2012 Games, which has become, I think even at the time, has stirred so much debate and is something that is really just held up as this kind of an apogee of little liberal Britain at its best, basically, and is constantly referred back to by sort of people who would describe themselves as politically homeless, sort of centrist MPs, people who are exasperated by Brexit, by Jeremy Corbyn until last year anyway, and just want a return to normality. And for them, normality is the apparently happy, cohesive utopia Mm. that that existed in Britain in 2012. So first of all, uh, I just want to read you a couple of Amazon reviews of Mm. the Wenlock police officer figurine, because I think that really gives you a sense. Obviously, we want you to see this picture too, but this is a podcast. And so we're going to try and conjure just exactly (laughs) how fucking terrifying they are. Um, The first review that I've pulled out on uh, Amazon reads as follows. I ordered this toy for my daughter's rather unruly stuffed animal collection, thinking that a police surveillance drone would add diversity to her cartoon figures, farm animals, corporate giveaways and safari dolls. But within minutes of unpacking, it had called for backup. And by the time we escaped into the living room, there were three dozen of these figures equipped with plexiglass shields and lasers. um, Sorry, tasers, rather. Clearing a path down the hallway and crowding all of her other animals in between a bookshelf and her dresser. One star. It's a lovely bit of kettling there yeah. for the toys. I also love that the title of that is Illuminati Needs Better Merch. One, <laughs> one star. It re- I mean, and it, you know, that's a fair comment about the mm. Illuminati. But yeah, the fact that that's your go-to comment as well is to just think, yeah, this is this conjures kettling. It conjures, you know, baton rounds and water cannon. Which, by the way, water cannon were bought, I think, by Boris Johnson, the then mayor of London, as a response to the London riots, which is something I just want to talk about quickly as a sort of scene setter here. Because if we're talking about the place of the police in the popular imagination in Britain in 2012, I mean, this is this is one of the things that absolutely maddens me about the way that the 2012 Olympics and that summer have been reimagined by a particular political constituency with a large platform in this country. And that's that they've just they've just forgotten what Britain was like otherwise <laughs> outside of the fucking arena, outside of Mo Farah's kind of victories. You know, 2011, 2012 were the years in which the coalition's austerity really started to bite in Great Britain. You had food bank usage doubled between 2011 and 2012. Wow. 2011 is the year when you've got the student protests of sort of late 2010, like erupting into something bigger that involved people other than students and not just people like me, but like, you know, Mm. uh, there was a massive TUC trade union demo on March the 26th, 2011, which was a really formative moment for a lot of people uh, I know. It's where I met a lot of like lefty types that I know. So, you know, I've got my own, I've got my own reified history. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Like (laughs) let's, let's be real about this. Like, but my, my attachment is to a period when the police were mass arresting peaceful UK uncut demonstrators in Fortnum and Mason. They arrested a guy, and this is a lovely little connection between all the things we're talking about. They arrested somebody for putting a sticker on the Olympic clock in Trafalgar Square, which was like the countdown clock to the Olympics. And no way. Because they'd formed like, I think they'd said that the Olympic clock, the you know countdown clock mm-hmm. was out of bounds or something. And mm. someone went and slapped a lefty sticker on it and was arrested for like breach of the peace. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, the riot police absolutely steamed in. Lovely stuff. And of course it ultimately culminates in the riots of August mm. 2011. Now to me, you can't have... Any, like, you know, historians of the future, or indeed of the present, uh, are talking, <laughs> just a nod to Kasha there, are talking about 2012. To me, you cannot separate the atmosphere around the Olympic Games, you know, which was mixed. Loads of people loved it. I loved bits of it too. I cheered on Mo Farah. That was a fucking fantastic day. Don't get me wrong. I'm not shitting on all of that. But you cannot detach 
any national story that emerges from the summer of 2012 from the fact that literally a year before mm. 30,000 people had taken part in the largest riots in the history of the mm. of this country in the English riots I think is the correct term really because they did not take place in Wales or Scotland or Northern Ireland and 1,000 over 1,000 people were arrested for those riots so you know obviously famous stories of like people being thrown in jail for six months for stealing mm. a case of water. Mm. Uh, you know, really, like, punitive, authoritarian response to poverty and police racism, mm. you know, which are endemic in this country, already were endemic, and then have intensified under David Cameron and the Lib Dems uh, coalition government. So you've got a really, you know, a discourse in 2011, which is all about the country being ripped apart, mm. you know? Uh, how did this happen? Lots of authoritarian responses inevitably send the army in, reintroduce like conscription or like sorry, national mm. service rather. <laughs> uh, not conscription, that's a bit too far. And indeed, sort of some of this rolls over into 2012. It's just you've got a fucking smile on the mm. face of the like police dogs basically mm. painted on. You've got 13,500 troops on the streets of Britain for the Olympics, mm. not, not just the cops, they needed, they needed army backup. You've got surface-to-air missiles placed on the rooftops of blocks of flats in East London in case, you know, I mean, and I don't know what the terrorist threat to London is realistically. Mm. Neither of us do. No, no, no civilian does. Mm. It's not stuff that's in the public domain. But nonetheless, judgment-free, this is the reality of what London mm. looks like. So I kind of also have read that the security for the Olympic Games is one of the most expensive in recent British history mm-hmm. and that it cost an estimated 11 billion, 9 billion of which was public money. Mm-hmm. So like it was a huge operation, but The Guardian did a poll mm. and 78% of people were still happy with the 9 billion price tag so because insane. the Olympics, and I'm quoting, did a valuable job in cheering up a country in hard times. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah, Cheering, yeah. Cheer up, cheer, guys. There's some sport up. on. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and that really, you know, I'm really glad now that we talked about the riots because that and the, you know, soaring food bank usage and so mm. on because these are the yin and yang of like, you know, the way the country sort of presents itself mm-hmm. to the world mm-hmm. or the way that, the, you know, the state and the government kind of sell, sell and indeed the corporations who are, have a vested interest in mm. this being the public image that we all share in this sort of shared identity of like, wow, we're all having just a wonderful year. I mean, do you remember there was, because it was also the Queen's Jubilee, this was referred to as the Jubilympic summer. Mm. There was an extra bank holiday, I think. There were street parties. You know, there was an attempt to like thread the two things together into just one long kind of orgy of like nationalism, essentially. Mm. Um or, or sorry, patriotism, because yeah, that's yeah. the softer <laughs> one that politicians are okay with. Mm-hmm. It's just absolutely deluded to like have any sort of conversation about the positives mm-hmm. of that summer, even if you do believe in them uncritically, which is you know people are welcome to, without also understanding the backdrop. Mm-hmm. You know that that the, like two hundred, I think no, it's one hundred and thirty thousand families came to the Trussell Trust for food. You know, mm. just base, just to feed themselves that year, and you've got you know the branding of the uh, British Olympic team that year is "Inspire a Generation." That's their that's their slogan, mm. which is just that's going to ring fucking hollow mm-hmm. if you're like going to school hungry, um, and yeah, for and sure. and actually, well, that survey was really is really interesting because I guess maybe it doesn't surprise me that it's still so fondly remembered in the mm. public imagination, and that nine billion is seen as. You know, people probably understandably are like, well, you know, Trident costs twice that good value, which it is by that comparison. Mm. Like, but some of the other sort of studies that have been done since as to like the immediate legacy on the local area, the amount of sport take up among people in the Olympic boroughs, the three or three to five boroughs, I think, in East London that were hosting events. There has literally been no change. Mm. to the to the amount of mm. take up so the so you may have inspired this next generation but they're not actually able not to do giving them sport. any well the facilities yeah. aren't there you know there's like, no like material structures yeah. or resources to yeah. even but they're inspired cashier yeah that's the thing <laughs> yeah well i think in a way what's like really strange for me about the when lock as a police officer thing is mm. that it, well it makes visible all of these really uncomfortable 
conversations, right? Mm. That are like nebulous within the Olympic Games. They're quite mm. hard to pin down because that's how national identity operates, right? Yeah. It operates as an atmosphere. It's kind of <laughs> in flags, in colours, in, yeah. in, you know, in, in small adverts by McDonald's or whatever, yeah, or big yeah. adverts by McDonald's. It kind of like floats around in this kind of nebulous air and it's quite hard and difficult to pin down. And I think one of the things about Wenlock dressed up as a police officer, because obviously Wenlock's not always dressed up as a police officer, it's no. just in that, in that horrible, strange toy that you found, <laughs> is that it kind of shows, in a way, the marrying of the repressive state apparatus with the ideological state apparatus so clearly, yes. you know? And not, like, I don't, I can't think of one object that marries the connection between, like, these are the ideologies of the ways in which states mm. work <laughs> alongside, literally like encapsulated in the, the ways in which people of those states are repressed, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so clearly. And, and it not, shows it goes so hand in hand with the Olympics, right? Absolutely. No, so well put. And like, and not just oppressed by the, you know, boys in blue, as it were, mm. but also by, you know, the, impl- I think we haven't talked about like the single eyeball head, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, here's the surveillance state. Yeah. Like ma- made clear, like it may yeah. be unintentional, but it is a perfect articulation of the fact that, London was the most surveilled city mm. in the world at the turn of the millennium. Mm. It's since been overtaken by, I think, two, possibly three Chinese cities mm. from recent like research I was doing. But certainly in the early 2000s, basically all of the police's, or rather, sorry, the Home Office's crime prevention budget mm. in that critical late 90s, early 2000s New Labour period was spent on CCTV. Mm. So you've got, you've got, you know, you've basically got the single eye, the panopticon toy mm. that is Wenlock standing in the middle of the Olympic arena, just gate, you know, like watching you wherever you move. Mm. So weird. <laughs> and also one of the things that I hadn't even considered was the backdrop of that mm. Wenlock toy mm. is, I think, number 10. So it's like... So I know what they're trying to do. They're trying oh to God, do... Oh, God, you're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, I <laughs> actually noticed yeah. that. <laughs> they're trying to do, like, Bobby's on the beat. And, you know, it's part of that kind of rebranding of the police. Like, oh, mm. we're not we're not the police that, like, come knocking on your door. You know, we're not that kind of police mm. that, like, violate mm. your rights. We're the yeah. kind of police that wear these hats. Yeah. And we stand outside number 10. And we're, like, really involved in the idea of, like, law and order. But not... But decorative. But decorative. decorative. <laughs> Ceremonial. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're your mates, you know, we're the people that are safe and also so implicitly connected to the idea of we're also kind of protecting the government here, Mm. which is wild when you think what the government were doing during that time. To think that it's, yeah, it's it's essentially positioned in a, you know, you've got to defend us from austerity because there were 500,000 people in the streets of London last year. Yeah, it's insane. Like (laughs) To work, Wenlock. Yeah, Wenlock isn't even in the the Olympic Park. He's literally outside a Mach number 10. (laughs) <laughs> during you know one of the one of the a real period of turbulence yeah. in our in our history in which let's not forget George Osborne was booed at yeah, the Paralympics uh, yeah so, he know, was that, booed so so actually while there is I think probably fairly is fair for those liberals to say like oh there was an atmosphere of jubilation around the games of course there was I wouldn't like to guess how much of the population but a substantial part of it I'm sure there was also a substantial part that were like oh, I can't be asked not interested in any of that you know just just want to get on with my life and struggle to make ends meet and so on. I feel like you could read it in two ways. Yeah. Like liberals could, well, some liberals, I'm not going to tar all liberals with the same brush, but some liberals could see this Wenlock toy and say, well, look, there's obviously nothing to see here because mm. we're so comfortable with our police force. Mm. We're so comfortable with our government. We're so committed to liberalism in the UK that actually, look, we can have a toy like this and it's not weird. Yeah. Whereas like, I think other people like me and you look at this and go, no, this is why it's so weird. <laughs> yeah. Like that is not a normal thing to do. It's not normal. It's super weird yeah. the fact that this exists in like departure lounges or did exist in departure yeah. lounges is such a strange goodbye <laughs> as a cuddly toy it's possibly even stranger isn't it but you're, you're absolutely right it's also like a city in which the corporate elites that are connected to the olympics are given a privilege that is like no other now mm. never mind the fact that like they're getting free corporate hospitality mm. the forty thousand odd dignitaries, diplomats, IOC members who have been welcomed to London, apart from being on the world's biggest freebie, they are also put into, they're also given the really interesting uh, 
prioritization of having their own car lane on the roads. Really? Yeah. So these were called zil lanes in Russia under the, or I think during the Soviet Union. Possibly post-Soviet. I'm not sure about that. I just know that they're called Zill Lanes, mm. which basically allow limousines carrying dignitaries mm. to have their own sort of pace of travel that bypasses all the traffic. You know, a bus lane, but for the elites, right. essentially. <laughs> yeah, and of course, right? <laughs> because, you know, why should they have to mm. drive on clogged up roads? Um, and that was one of the many things that was introduced to sort of make their lives easier. And I think it's relevant here because... It's a really useful like example of how this thing that's supposed to be bringing people together is mm-hmm. actually very much privileging the moneyed elites and the sort of international diplomatic and mm-hmm. political kind of types who are really the ones reaping the benefits from the games. It's not the kids around the corner who've just had their playing field ripped up to build a car park, possibly to be replaced by a basketball hoop six months later. You know, that's the which is your sort of average, like, kind of, look, we're supporting sport in the community kind of rhetoric. And then, yeah, to sort of bring us right up to the day of the, the opening ceremony, the protests have been effectively banned, which is uh, another thing that Wenlock, the police officer, will have been, I'm sure, instrumental in, <laughs> personally. in, 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 personally in, in putting into place. But you had people pre-arrested. They like, didn't put that on the promo. No, they fucking didn't, did <laughs> they? You know, yeah, suiting up in his like um, <laughs> suiting up in his sort of yeah police riot squads uniform. Yeah, pre-arrests were kind of relatively common. By which mm-hmm. I mean like people who were planning to stage a protest that may have involved something that could be categorised as crime are then allowed to be arrested in their own homes before any of this has taken place. Wow. You know, they're not being charged under conspiracy mm-hmm. to, like, commit a terrorist attack or whatever, which you would understand certain types mm. of planning of, like, future crimes. You can see why in a sort of, from the judicial point of view, like, that that is an offence. But we're literally talking about, like, a group of anarchists who are planning to have a bit of a party in Soho Square, nowhere near the Olympic site, had their homes raided, were pulled in, kept overnight, etc. Were you one of those anarchists? No, 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 I wasn't. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was at my desk, you know, writing how angry I was about all of it, just like the <laughs> decadent, self-indulgent bourgeois writer that I am. But yeah, the night of the games then, the critical mass bike riders, who have been like conducting the same bicycle-based protest every last Friday of the month for decades, mm. which is to just ride around London and reclaim the streets on their bikes... They decided they were going to go ahead. 130 cyclists were arrested and kettled for up to three hours. Nowhere near the Olympic site, really. I mean, they were just, they made it over the river as far as sort of Bow and sort of the edge Mm. of Stratford, I think. But it's not like they weren't, they weren't hitting the stadium with their bikes or something, Mm. you know, they, they were just en route to it. They were mass arrested. I happen to know from one of the people who was arrested that they later sued for wrongful arrest and got £3,000 each. Wow. Which is a measure... And the thing is, as far as I understand this type of arrest, the police will have known Mm. that that would have happened, that Mm. they had no grounds. Like, I think... I'm trying to remember what they were arrested for now. I think it was... It was partly because they'd been riding in the special car lanes... I think. Oh, really? Which is quite funny. But yeah, it was sort of breach I'm getting of the like, or I'm, something. I'm getting like images of, there was like a really rubbish film. Maybe it was like Johnny English or something. <laughs> there's like, like kind of covert operation was like hidden underneath like a, a bicycle protest. Wow. You know, it's like this kind of like, I don't know. Smuggled in amongst the yeah. uh, unruly kind of two-wheeled masses. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they are, they're more flexible and mobile and maybe there's something about that that terrifies, uh, you know. The people with power. I just like to think that because I'm a zealous new cyclist, I think. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, so it's so interesting that like the idea of having uh, a clean city was so important to the corporate sponsors who are really the power brokers in the context mm. of the Olympics. And a clean city, that's not my term. That is like a term that mm. is discussed in those big sort of uh, advertising commercial sponsorship deals or partnerships as they mm. prefer to call them. As if, as if that is anything other than a euphemism. And in, ter- in terms of prote- you know, presenting a clean city, that means no protest, means no trouble, means no homeless people outside. It means no, no sense that this, is a social, that this city is a social place where there is contestation mm. and conflict um, of various kinds all the time and that there are people who suffer 
while living in the city just around the corner from the gleaming new tower blocks that are going up as part of the development. I mean, they went as far in terms of like, I know we're interested in the sort of physical built environment as Mm -hmm. well, building a new sculpture outside of Stratford Station, which is the, for those who don't know, the one that you, you would use to get to the Olympic Stadium, a sculpture which hid the old ugly shopping centre from the new arrivals so that they didn't even see that it was there before they then turned around and went over the bridge to the Westfield that was being built. So it was sort of, yeah, there's actually like a physical screen over the city that used to exist in Stratford, essentially. And if I can just, sorry, say one more, (laughs) cover one more thing, which is about the way that like the brands that exist in the Olympics are protected. Like when Locke is a brand, Coca-Cola and McDonald's as Mm -hmm. the official partners of the Olympic Mm -hmm. Games that year are everywhere. Mm. If you try and wear a Pepsi t-shirt or carry a McDonald's paper, uh, sorry, a Burger King paper bag into the official Olympic site, you would have that confiscated from you. No. This is part of the deal that they do. They pay so much money that they want their like main rivals erased from from that terrain, essentially. It's so interesting because McDonald's, particularly tried to create this like image of a brand that's like the people's the people's cheeseburger I don't know, like, <laughs> yeah yeah they really you know in all of their advertising it's they had like an advert which just says which was called we all make the games mm. and this television advert formed kind of like part of a broader marketing campaign that mm-hmm. kind of recon- recognized mcdonald's as intimately tied to the nation in the advertisement it was like the snapper the chatter they're not really keener we all make the games and it was wow. like all of us are kind of part of this thing and it really mirrored <sighs> George Osborne's claim that, like, you know, under austerity, we're all in it together. But it's, Mm. like, ties back to a much larger, much longer history of how brands kind of co-opt a sense of we-ness to make Mm -hmm. it seem like we're in this together and we're not really. But also they kind of really gave the impression that it wasn't just about sport, you know? It's like all of us doing this thing together. Well, yeah, there's there's some sense of a community that is being awakened, like a global community is being awakened, but then paradoxically, like, here we all are waving the flag of our our nation state Mm. in a way that doesn't happen in any other context. I mean, there's the World Cup in football, but that's only played by... Uh, hazarding a guess a third of the globe or something like seriously like Mm -hmm. or competed in seriously by a third so you know i think the olympics is very is a unique play has a unique role to play in like any sense of national identity but also like how nation states relate to each other in the 21st century i think maybe we should move on to talk about the opening ceremony shouldn't we Mm -hmm. um so directed by danny boyle yeah but I think I think maybe you know something about the like origin of it that even precedes Danny Boyle's kind of directorial vision for this for this two hour long hour long ceremony. Yeah. So doing a little bit of rewatching, the actual ceremony on YouTube is four hours, and the number of views of that ceremony is thirteen million. Oh I, no, yeah. it isn't <laughs> for a four million. hour program. Yeah. Well, I think that's what all of those numbers after the thirteen mean. Yeah. <laughs> it's literally thirteen million, just over actually, views on that four hour procession. Yeah. And relatedly, when it was announced that they were going to rescreen it in uh, the first weeks of the pandemic mm. uh, earlier in 2019, the jubilation that this was met with on Twitter by the same sort of liberal mm. uh, centrist sort of politicians and commentators is reflective of that same zeal. Mm. People love people love that shit. I mean, it is a unique narrative. It is, as far as I understand, unlike any other opening ceremony has been in recent decades in terms of really going for sort of movie style ambition in telling the story of the mm. nation mm. yeah completely so i was re-watching it for this and i'm not even i'm not even gonna lie right i actually got a bit emotional sure. <laughs> and like i'm a historian of national identity i've read all of the critiques <laughs> of national identity yeah. i know all this stuff i've really really engaged myself in critical theory in relation to the nation state and also i'm not even ethnically british <laughs> like i'm not even like i was i was born here and i feel i do feel british 
But I'm not like, you know, all of those industrialists and whatever, they're not, they're not... They're not your ancestors. They're not my ancestors, no. Isambard Kingdom T. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not, he's, he's not one of my ancestors. Watching it, I was almost getting emotional in apprehension Mm. of it. Mm -hmm. It has such a strong emotional resonance Mm -hmm. in a way that like... Which bits got you? Do you know what? Even before I started watching it, I had this feeling inside. Like, I can't... It's hard to describe. This almost, like, feeling of apprehension, of emotional apprehension. Like, the emotional weight is kind of, like, there. Yeah. And then, even watching it, I don't know if there were, like, specific bits that, like, got me, but I'm so aware. I'm so reflective on the fact that my emotions are being manipulated, in a way, you know? Like, and I understand that... I don't think the intention is a manipulation of emotions, but it leads you down a a path of feeling, right? Mm -hmm. Of overwhelming feeling Mm -hmm. in a way that I really wasn't expecting because I just take the piss all the time, Mm. you know? And like, I'm, I'm watching this feeling, this kind of sense of all of these emotions. So I guess one of the easiest things to do is maybe like describe what this Olympic ceremony looks like. So you start off with this kind of Alad Jones type figure singing Jerusalem. And Mm -hmm. it's all of these, it's rooted in this kind of like idyllic Englishness, you know, of the green and pleasant land, Mm -hmm. Um, which still, by the way, is the dominant view of, I think, quintessential Englishness. Mm -hmm. So it's inherently tied to a particular mythology of being tied to greenery. And Jerome de Groot wrote about that, about, you know, someone like riding on their bicycle through this idyllic English village. There's a couple of all well bits, but the one that springs to mind is him returning from the Spanish Civil War and describing southern England as the sleekest landscape in the world. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, and the sort of green fields of Surrey that surround him on his way back to London. There's no abject poverty. There's no starvation. Mm. There's no exploitation. Mm. It's like this mythic utopia, I right? I mean, it's quasi-pagan in its own way, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you saw that, like, yeah, in yeah. the in the um, ceremony, there's all these people going around maypoles and, like, <laughs> you know, throwing, I don't know, playing, like, the sort of, of pre, you know, Olympic sports that were popular in particular villages, stool ball. Yeah, yeah, that's it, stool ball. I was trying yeah, to think yeah. of the name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just as you were speaking that, it kind of made me think about the ways in which on the left there are always debates about how much the left wing should claim a sense of national identity. Mm-hmm. We've kind of touched on this, you know, and, mm-hmm. and this is a debate that in a way is, has been had but still re it still reappears I mean, every it will, it will keep being had and you know if scotland gets a second independence referendum next mm. year which it might try and do even if it's not allowed to by westminster then questions of english national identity specifically mm. will be sort of just everywhere again mm-hmm. yeah 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 and like there's often this lamenting on the left like oh the right have such a strong sense of national identity mm-hmm. and we don't really have that because we're always critiquing all the bad things that we've done and it's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Actually, yes. yeah. Because, yes. <laughs> you know, the left have their own mythologies as well and I would kind of say that there is a left-wing national identity to that piece you know? mm. and it being related to this idyllic land. Mm. It's mm. as much as in Jeremy Corbyn growing his own courgettes as it is Prince Charles trying to protect the red squirrel, you know? They're, a t- <laughs> they're two of the same thing in a way. Like, yeah. I know they kind of kind of demarcate to different conversations, sure. but they're still kind of broadly within this idea of of a kind of idyllic Englishness yeah, almost. Yeah. They can kind of be nestled within those... That's such an interesting couple of examples to pull together. Yeah. But you're abs- yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I, I mean, I think you're never going to stop getting that discussion about prog- what progressive patriotism might look like in, in England specifically as opposed to Britain. And I think that's partly because it's not really ever going to be resolved. Like, you know, that's not... It's not something that the left... It's not a conversation that the left is comfortable having... But I say that, when I say that, I say that quite happy about that fact. It's often it's often said, oh, the left needs to be more comfortable talking about patriotism, otherwise it's never going to win the election ever again. Mm. It's never going to connect to the ordinary people of this country, the hard-working yeoman, etc., blah, 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 blah. And I just feel like don't particularly care. I don't mm. think that's the terrain on which the left should be trying to win any argument, really. Mm. I agree. I'm quite happy to abdicate that territory. Mm. And that doesn't mean that you can't also be interested in the nation mm. and interested in discussing what makes what characteristics people who happen to live on this island share. Because, mm. 
you know. Well, feeling those sense of national identity. Yes. You know, through like very, very small things. Absolutely. And we feel, I think this is, I'm sure, a idea I've nicked from somewhere that I can't remember where, but we feel it most keenly when we're overseas, Mm. right? Yeah. Because then you notice the, the sort of differences that make you think, wait, why aren't these Italian people who I otherwise love and adore queuing properly? Or, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. just to throw in a real, like, chocolate box cliche of, a, of, a, of a, an English trope. Mm. But, yeah. So we have this kind of landscape, kind of also centred around, like, Glastonbury tour, you uh-huh. know, that kind of, like, yeah, mythic paganism, basically. And then we have the coming of the Industrial Revolution and its capitalists that we can identify with their like mm. stovepipe hats. And we've got Isambard Kingdom Brunel played by Kenneth Branagh. Mm. And we've got this kind of like music tempo change. So it goes from kind of like Enya to like March of the Urukai energy. You know, <laughs> this kind of like drumming thing. And like this is the age of like industrial And steel. then I noticed they're not all smiling, the actors who are playing the industrial workers, right? Because I thought part of my memory of it was that this narrative that Danny Ball has created just presents British history as a seamless sort of evolution from and, and quite happy. You know, this is what we I remember from my undergrad history degree we call Whiggish history, where, mm. you know, things slowly get reformed. We tweak around the edges of public life until, you know, we reach a, a sort of rational and sensible vision of progress we Mm. don't do revolutions here that sort of thing and as part of that i was sort of expecting when we got to the industrial revolution bit everyone would just be like la 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 off we go to the factory oh look we've Mm. created a wealthy country how wonderful but they did look quite unhappy and dirty so i will give danny boyle credit for Mm. that because that's not that's not a period of just like happy sort of calm transition is you know the british industrial revolution is a yeah. period of incredible contestation and suffering and yeah sort of yeah, upheaval, yeah for sure you know? for sure afterwards the games were called well the kind of opening ceremony was called like not tory enough yes i don't know maybe if they had been smiling and it had been a little bit more whiggish in yeah, a way yeah. you know and obviously there's no mentions of empire because that entire industrial revolution was fueled by imperialism by colonialism yeah. Yeah, yeah. it couldn't have happened you know like small children in like mills in uh like manchester losing limbs you know if it mm. wasn't for all of the children from around the globe also like yeah. losing like or starving to death or losing limbs so is because i didn't watch the whole thing the whole four hours forgive me but did uh, from from watching it is an empire completely erased then, would you say? So it's so it it gets a kind of really, really brief mention with, with Windrush, basically. Yeah. And the, there's a kind of voiceover who, he doesn't really mention empire at all, but he kind of says, oh, and people from other lands came, came to help, <laughs> came to help, but doesn't really... Wow, that's such a fucking yeah, kid's book sort yeah, of euphemistic kind yeah. of airbrushing, isn't it? Like... It was really like... Some of our friends from overseas yeah. came to give us a hand. It's literally like Theresa May oh, being God. all like, oh yeah, we're going to like, we're going to like restart friendships with like old pals from across <laughs> the globe. French reunited like, vision yeah. of the British Empire. Yeah, yeah. like, yeah. it's just, it's so, so depressing. Yeah. So that section specifically was called Pandemonium mm. and it was based on the writings of Humphrey Jenkins. He was like a contemporary of the daddy of cultural studies, Raymond Williams. Some historians have compared his writing as being as important as Walter Benjamin's Arcades Project. But he's he's one of these people that seems kind of slept on. Um, But I was really intrigued by this idea of his connection to this pandemonium section. So Frank Cotterell Boyce, who was the writer behind it, um, kind of along with Danny Boyle, Mm. he actually loved this book and, like, everyone had to read a copy of this book, Pandemonium. And also what's weird about it is it's spelt like... You know, like um, like neo pagan movements that spell like fairy with like too many A's and E's. <laughs> pandemonium is spelt like that because it comes from John Milton's Paradise Lost, and Pandemonium mm. was like the name of the city of hell. Wow. So it's like this connection to industrialization as that being a kind of initial bit of hell, but it can make its way to be Jerusalem. So there is this kind of weird temporality that underpins this concept of like this middle bit. Because these are the dark satanic mills, dare I say? Like Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think it's interesting that Jerusalem is what kicks off the ceremony as well, because Mm. that song's always been a really interesting 
quite contested uh, piece of music and, and sort of poem in that it's popular with English rugby fans who are mm. very, like, sorry if anyone's listening who's not in this category, Tory upper-class wankers, like, on the, for the most part. But it's also beloved of your Billy Bragg sort of soft left, can we find an English patriotism that is progressive kind of cohort as well. Mm-hmm. Like, it is, it is brought up time and time again in that context as an alternative to Rule Britannia or God Save the Queen, mm-hmm. both of which are appalling dirges as well as being, like, much less a quote-unquote people's patriotism that mm. is conveyed in that it is def you know those songs are both deferential in like pro-colonial pro-monarchy mm-hmm. as opposed to like trying to encapsulate something rather more accessible for every and egalitarian i suppose which isn't to say that i necessarily endorse that position i do prefer jerusalem myself, <laughs> but but i'm not about to I'm not about to sort of devote all my time to campaigning for it to be our new national anthem because I don't care that much. Yeah, because who does? <laughs> well, some people obviously some do. Some people do, yeah. yeah. But like in the, in the lyrics of it and even just in the music, there are those aspects of national identity. You know, that thing that I was saying that's yeah, quite yeah. hard to pin down. Like you mm. can just listen to the introduction of that song and it makes you feel so strongly and so emotively about a specific thing. Mm-hmm. Humphrey Jenkins' book subtitle of it is the coming of the machine as seen by contemporary observers so it's got this weird temporality where it's like based on what people at the time would have seen the machine as doing but also it kind of creates this chronology kind of like we start off at this one point and then we're gonna end up kind of in the future what really lives in my memory of it and was sort of reignited re-watching some of it this week was just how interesting the contested politics of it are there Mm. so you know you've got You've got migrant workers in the NHS, I think, mm-hmm. are represented, are they not? Which is one sort of nod to a post-colonial multicultural mm-hmm. Britain, even if we're not mm-hmm. talking about the colonialism that preceded it at mm-hmm. all, much more problematically. But that you've also got the suffragettes featured. Mm-hmm. And I think for some people in the way the Industrial Revolution period is represented, that you know the fact that, that even that is evidence that this is a great, liberal or or even argue, some people would argue left-wing kind of vision of british identity which is how you end up with tories saying mm. this is nowhere near tory enough and mm. there were crit- critical articles published at the time i think the daily mail had a huge one mm-hmm. just basically attacking this uh, cultural marxism ultimately yeah. I mean, they didn't call it that back then i think they now mm. are freely using the mm. phrase cultural marxism which is great because it's fucking bad but <laughs> Um, but yeah, you know, there, there was a real fight over that territory and you had... But I guess know, like what, like a more Tory version would have been them privatising the NHS <laughs> just as it was getting, just as it was emerging or they're not being one because they thought that well, children can, should pay for their own cough medicine. Well, or... it would, it does, definitely the suffragettes bit would have involved like some women politely asking if they could have the vote and then getting it as yeah, opposed yeah, to like yeah, people yeah, yeah. Sm- like no smashing <laughs> windows took place no you know no like suicide by king's horse took place Do you, you know what mm. i mean i don't think that featured in the in the in the narrative but... like and i know at the time there was like quite a lot of critique around the idea that like oh the nhs is featured but mm. like it's obviously getting sold off and that was like a really clear there was something really uncomfortable, wasn't there, yeah. about this, like, oh, we love the NHS, whereas, especially during those years, yeah, and, like, yeah. ever since, there's such an underlying, like... That creeping privatisation ha- has been yeah. sort of happening, you know, piece by piece, but it but it certainly intensified with that David Cameron, George Osborne government. Yeah. So we have, we have the first section, which is pandemonium with too many A's and E's. Mm-hmm. Then we have the middle section, which is... NHS, Bedtime Stories, J.K. Rowling, was okay. still a hero. <laughs> yeah, great and then summary. Yeah, and then this final section is like, it's called Frankie and June Say Thanks, Tim. And it's all about music, basically, and pop culture. Oh. So there's this entire section. It kind of starts off with like the Archers theme music, which I slightly love because I fucking love the Archers for no reason <laughs> other than like I got really, really sad during my PhD and it was the only thing that oh. seemed to be vaguely like... All the problems are like, oh, they've let out some cows. Oh, there are cows in the lane. Happens to me all the time. Yeah. (laughs) And it's just all about music and culture and the birth of the internet. And then it kind of ends with this section where it's like, 
everyone, this is Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the World Wide Web, right? And behind him is the stadium lights up and it says, this is for everyone. And even uh, people on the left who are like critiquing this kind of culture was like, this was the best bit because Tim Berners-Lee is such a lovely man. It was mm. really, really excellent. And for me, I actually find this bit the most problematic mm-hmm. bit because... There are a few interesting things that are happening in this narrative of the mm. opening ceremony. So the first thing is that you can see a clearly defined chronology through the ways that they organise time, which you'd expect from a narrative. But in the later stages, we see that there is a kind of, we see an interconnected society. So all of the themes of the past that kind of divided society are now reconciled in this age of like the internet, mm-hmm. right? So it perpetuates this kind of idea that the past is... The past is evil. The evil is past. We're no longer evil because we've got all these things that unite us. We've got the internet. We've got music. We've got pop culture. So, yeah, we had this industrialization. <laughs> right. You know, we had this industrial revolution that was, like, horrible and, like, exploited many, many people through violence. Mm. And, yeah, we had the empire, though we're not really going to talk about that except for a, a, a kind of nod to the, to the Windrush generation. Mm. But then this final section is actually the most problematically utopian i think wow, for me that's interesting yeah so so it's sort of a, like it's a whiggish history in which the culmination is not universal suffrage and parliamentary democracy it's the beatles and and like free and, and like and the wireless culmin- broadband yeah and dizzy rascal <laughs> and, and the dizzy, culmination yeah, yeah. of that all of yeah. all of that is the internet right. like what more egalitarian force could we have and you know it's obviously now that we're seeing i mean it could have been how, but you know yeah. well it's obviously now that we're seeing how you know it's obviously changed our society in immeasurably benefited it but also yeah. like undermined democracy and undermined so i mean it's things. exactly the same thing that ironically a lot of those sort of west streeting mp lib lib journos and politicians are decrying about democracy you know everything that they the very reason that they want to go back to 2012 is because you know russian bots have stolen democracy Mm. which is you know nonsense but also like it's it's something that's very widely believed i think this narrative is something that like really this is one of the things that like most people wouldn't even recognize but this is so strongly tied to national identity it's not just that this guy tim berners lee who actually before the ceremony i was like i have no idea who this man is like i just didn't know who he was it's not just that he's in it it's about the fact that this culminates in telling us who we are now Mm. we're a society that have overcome the violences of the past of the industrial past and i guess that's why they maybe didn't mention empire because we haven't overcome the tensions that have underpinned that. So it's kind of like this idea that like, yeah, but we're all together and now we've got these games, you know? So in this, it's a sort of like alternative to like Marxist teleology where you have sort of the different phases of the evolution of capital and the evolution of the class society in it. And then after you transition through the phase of the industrial proletariat and the industrial revolution, instead of having the class antagonism that ultimately leads to communism... You have the you have the, you have yeah. the fucking Beatles. <laughs> you have you have the class antagonism that it results in like yeah the fact that Britain's like pretty good at exporting pop music. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you've got texting, and you've got pop music. Don't and... worry about the communism. Yeah. You've got Dua Lipa. You know, I mean, she is sick to be fair. So. so, like one of the things, and I don't know, maybe this is like a bit of a tangent, but the reason why I find this so interesting is that it's so inherently tied to this idea of chronological time, mm-hmm. and I find chronological time so problematic for so, so, so many now, reasons. Now, bear in mind, a lot of people listening to this are going to say, "What, Kesha? Yeah. Why? What is your problem with what other way is there?" of organizing well this it. <laughs> is the thing because chronological time is so embedded within the ways in which we understand our lives right yeah. we even see our own histories as kind of this chronology of like from childhood to now but the ways in which we experience our life mm-hmm. isn't chronological mm-hmm. you know we constantly go back to that friend that we spoke to 10 years ago i like was walking up like a hill the other day and i had the most chronic anxiety from something i did four years ago that will never ever never never any repercussions from yeah. it because that person probably doesn't even remember sure. but you know the ways in which we experience our own life it's not straight temporally yeah. We don't live our lives like, well, yesterday happened, on to the next. You know, we literally constantly live with our past. Yeah. So I think the reason why I find chronological time so so difficult is that it's inherently tied to industrialization and the birth of nations, mm-hmm. but so much so that it has become normative. Chronological time is the ways in which historians say this is how time operates. But it's not. It's historical. So... 
it's like inherently rooted to the idea like absolute time and absolute space which is influenced by the writing of Sir, Sir Isaac Newton so the uh-huh. development of time is this kind of enlightenment baby right yeah but actually the ways in which time was experienced before then was kind of really episodic local uneven irregular and spatialized so you experience time based on like how your community or you as an individual experience the day mm. and also that varies considerably between cultures so like the Maori for example they have a different conception of the ways in which time operates i think it's that it's more that it's circular rather than mm. it doesn't travel like an arrow straight it's yeah. circular you know and yeah. loads of cultures have that and so, then, i mean in the imposition of i mean this is fairly fundamental stuff but i just want to clarify with the mm-hmm. expert but like the imposition of kind of a strict kind of hour by hour clock and time mm-hmm. uh during the day and then the calendar even is really about sort of the disciplining of the industrial workforce, right? Yeah, yeah. So, Ultimately, so, when, when industrialization occurs. And is that is that how it's sort of connected to this this massive sea change in sort of, in, in how the economy and society is constructed? Exactly. So clock time is like a system of order that kind of came out in the 14th century in Europe, but was like mass rolled out during industrialization, right? Mm-hmm. So like you have a clock and that's how you measure how much... It, that's how you measure production, right? And make sure You're supposed you get to, have... to work on time. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah exactly. Rather than when the dawn comes up and you go to the field. Yeah, but universal clock time is actually really, really recent. So... In 1884, a single global time was adopted at the International Meridian Conference. And um, the acceptance of this unified time, a really brilliant historian, Stephen Mm. Tanaka, has said, was even more slow. So Japan unified time according to the 24-hour clock in 1873. It's not that long ago, (laughs) 1873. And then synchronised to Greenwich Mean Time in 1886. Germany unified time in 1873. 93 and France conformed to uh, GMT in 1911 and the United States didn't conform to or didn't accept Greenwich Mean Time until 1918. Wow. Literally like not that long ago. That's incredible. You know end of the First World War. Okay, so one of the things that we can get from this is time is inherently connected to the rise of the nation state and that as, as a system of governance. Mm. But it's also, time is also inherently colonial <laughs> because it ties into the idea that in like the West and in European nations specifically, they're like, oh, we've got this way of organising time. Mm. And anyone who doesn't adopt that way of organising time is othered, but also they're in this kind of not yet their field, you know? Mm-hmm. They're kind of like, oh, well, they're slow to adopt our kind of times. We map what we call progress yeah. alongside our own kind of sense of history. Mm-hmm. So it's inherently tied to all of these like really problematic practices. Can I just blow your mind? Go on. So, so the the, Again? Per- the <laughs> period the period that you're talking about when when this was finally universal time is mm-hmm. that the, is that mm-hmm. the universal clock time the correct term when it was finally codified in most of those nations. You mm. know, you said you said it was very as late as 1918, but most of that was around the 1890s, mm-hmm. right? Guess when the first ever modern Olympic Games was? Oh, God. 1896. <laughs> Crazy. So, yeah, this, this... so these things arrive at the exact same time, actually. It's just, yes. it's mind-blowing, you know? It, it really is. It really, really is. So I feel like there are some things that we can get out of this that I find really, really challenging, particularly, and that's that chronological time fosters this notion of continuity and discontinuity that's, like, sequential. So mm. it's kind of it kind of suggests that there's like a flow. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's tricky about that is that this linearity appears like neutral and natural, mm-hmm. but actually it's deployed within value systems. New is better than old. Recent is superior to the past. Mm-hmm. And the future will be better. You know, this idea I mean, of future-oriented. I mean, that ideology is intrinsic to Olympic project, I mm. think is the best way of characterising it. It's how the arrival of the Olympic Games is is uh, heralded in every fucking country, mm-hmm. every city that it ends up in. It's like, we are going... We, this is not just about the sport that takes place in a two-week period before disappearing. This is about transforming the area and the lives of the people that live in the area for the better like the the reason that urban studies people are obsessed with the olympics is because as happened in stratford in east london the they herald like the most total transformative quote-unquote regeneration projects which i think is a word Mm. that probably needs to be queried but they they are all about legacy you know like Mm. the the organization the semi-independent public private 
partnership type organization that runs the Olympic site to this day is the London Legacy Development mm. Corporation. And that sort of that idea of looking to the future is it's there in the Team GB name, which was Inspire Generation. And it's there in the their subsequent uh, motto, because they replaced the Olympic motto the next year, I mm. noticed, with Better Never Stops, which is just a wretched mm. like Nike slogan type mm. bullshit, isn't mm-hmm. it? You know. But it's all about sort of looking to the future. But there is this kind of future orientedness of it, which I find really it says something and like the use of chronological time, particularly in relation to that makes the idea of change appear kind of natural and positive, Mm -hmm. which I think is my broader kind of critique of it really is that, and and especially this kind of on the, on the work of Stephen Tanaka, where he's talking about how change is often built on the foundations of what came before. So he argues that changes are not actually as radical as chronology makes them appear. Mm -hmm. So um, he kind of, he kind of goes on this rant about these like scientists in his university that are like, oh my God, we are innovating fossil fuel use because instead of using fossil fuels, we're going to start using algae. And his okay. Tanaka's point is that actually it's not really innovative. It's not really change because you're still using that same carbon-based economy. So actually this idea of innovation reinforces the idea of status quo often. Okay. So it presumes that change comes from this kind of that change comes from the orthodoxy of structure itself, you know? So Mm -hmm. it's like, oh, we can change things from within the system. Mm -hmm. When actually, often, you can't change things within the system because you end up just using different minerals or different Mm -hmm. things from the earth that are still destructive. To do the same thing. To do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. To do the same thing. It's not not an overhaul of all of it. It's just like, oh, we're going to look to algae. But look, innovation. And that's kind of what the Olympic Games do in a way. They're like, look, innovation. Do you know what I mean? But it's kind of. But they also, but they also extol the virtues of tradition so much, don't you think? They like, go side by side. Yeah, you like know? you know, there's a real, like there's always references to the ancient games, and mm-hmm. even though this is like thousands of years ago and like mm-hmm. completely different society, you know, not that I don't think those connections and the journey from the Greek ancient games to the modern ones aren't interesting, but there's a, you know, there's also real like, uh, completely self-interested like. Canonization of Olympic history. So, Mm -hmm. you know, every Olympics is, uh, you know, accompanied by a whole bunch of films and references, you know, or other archive movie clips, like film clips of, you know, someone breaking some great world record in 1978 or whatever. Like, so that that sense of tradition is important as well, Mm -hmm. I think, even while there is a real, like, a real return to the rhetoric inspiring the kids of the future like you know maybe they'll be competing one day like that stuff is fucking constant but they're they're, but they're part of the same chronology yeah yeah. you know it's like these traditions and then how that manifests through time Mm. they are like literally steeped in the this kind of arrow of chronology the Mm -hmm. olympic games you know it's like there's the mythology and there's all of these like creation of these amazing games and then how that fared throughout history and then look Look where we are. We're in. We're in the present, but we're almost in the future. And doesn't it look bright? <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think that's the thing that all these like people really, really love about it because it's yeah. like you're in the present, but we're almost in the future. And doesn't it look bright? Yeah. Although I, mm, I think like the way that the liber- the those sort of liberal commentators who are like fetishizing 2012 now, mm. the the way they value it is as a sort of refuge. Like they mm. are in a sense no different from the sort of baby boomers who were never alive during the second world war and keep banging on the fu- about the fucking blitz you know it's but instead for them obviously this is a thing they can genuinely remember not least because it was only eight years ago and for them it is an antidote to what they see as a horrifying present where mm. coronavirus trump brexit corbyn the quote-unquote rise of populism, which I say through gritted teeth, you know, all of these things that are in the liberal imaginary is having ruined something, mm-hmm. but that's what it ruined. Mm. It ruined, like, a country in which everything was calmer and better and food bank use wasn't doubling because they weren't paying attention to it, mm. you know? Because, <laughs> do you know what? So this ties in um, kind of tenuously, but this is kind of, like, one of the... Last things that I kind of I've I've got to say. That's my, and that's what I think on the issue. <laughs> so um, 
I guess one of the things that I think is really interesting about the ways in which these games tie in with national identity is that there are still kind of fractures and there are fractures in the ways in which nat- national identity operates. It's never just because we're, we're all not one people, like the concept of a nation is heavily constructed. Mm. There was a person in The Guardian that wrote that the games reminded those suspicious of raucous patriotism of how great the Union flag suddenly looked when it was ripped out of the hands of the extreme right and wrapped around the shoulders of Jessica Ennis or Mo Farah. That's such an interesting quote, isn't it? It's a really good, useful example, actually, of something that was much more widespread sort of across the British media that summer, mm. which was... And still a, is. And Yeah, and it's, it's very pervasive, isn't it? Although I think in terms of the like sport as a unifying or indeed nationally dividing sort of entity that is so important in identity formation, whether that's local, regional, national, whatever, has acquired a more complicated relationship with the politics of post-colonial like race relations, multiculturalism and stuff in the form of the like massive resurgence of racism at football matches more Mm. recently. So I think maybe in that respect, the libs who love 2012 are um, maybe there's a little something to, to, to their sort of nostalgic reminiscence in the sense that like the way Mo Farah was hailed across the press, Mm. um, at that point, compared to the way that somebody like Marcus Rashford is is sort of demonised mm. today. But can I just say, like, on Mo Farah, he was repeatedly asked about his Britishness. Yeah. And in that act of asking him about his Britishness, it already betrays a kind of... Uh, not a lack of, not a, not ill faith, or maybe ill faith. I'm yeah. not really sure if that's the right way to describe it, but of this kind of thing that Stuart Hall has always talked about. A contingent about the, identity, essentially. Yeah, yeah, about the positive and negative, about that you're only as useful insofar as you kind of adhere to a particular identity, or, yeah. or they use your identity to kind of champion a kind of multiculturalism. Of course, it's the, I mean, it's the good immigrant, it's the good immigrant sort of paradigm ultimately isn't it and it's one that recurs across the years and the decades tragically like i think people are maybe maybe the public discourse is beginning to catch up with the fact that if you only extol the virtues of like the hero migrant who saved somebody from drowning Mm. or the you know wonderful you know nurses who you know massively Mm. underpaid and came from sort of you know the windrush generation that heal our sick and you mm. know do the care jobs that nobody who was born in this country wants to do then you are implicitly ruling out everybody else as an economic migrant a, sp- a sponger a yeah. scrounger etc etc and i think people are becoming more aware that the, the folly of that discourse but that doesn't mean that it's gone away it's still completely fucking hegemonic I find it interesting that he was both championed continually as like the definition of Britishness while simultaneously being queried on how British he was, you know. Yeah, so how yeah. British are you really? You know, yeah, how British yeah, do you yeah, actually yeah. feel? But if he was really that British, then he wouldn't be asked or even his Britishness brought up because it's a yeah. naturalised state, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. like a kind of normative personhood to be British in Britain, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's like, I don't know, it's kind of like one of those things that just as you were saying now, it's like... I wonder, like, if the Daily Mail ever, like, launched a triade against me. Would I be Polish historian <laughs> cash a tea? Yeah. <laughs> even, though I, like, even though I watched that Olympic ceremony with, like, this emotive sense because I'm yeah. so invested in, like, well, the can, cultures of Britishness. You can tell them that in your defence. Oh, yeah, I'm really, <laughs> really looking forward to it. Really you just say, look, listen, Daily Mail reporter. <laughs> I almost had a tear in my eye. Actually, when when Alla Jones, a young Alla Jones sung Jerusalem. Thank you. I love the idea that in your head, like, anybody who's under the age of 10 and sings is Alan Jones. <laughs> I've got very, very few cultural, like, pop cultural I mean, look, I don't, I don't know any other, like, <laughs> choir members. And that's actually interesting because, I've got to say, maybe it's tenuous, but the little animation that goes with Wenlock mm. is, is got strong, the snowman vibes. Mm. It's like this granddad, like, 
carves these two steel figurines for his like mm-hmm. like for his grandchildren that are like Wenlock and Mandeville. Mandeville and like he carves these things and then they come to life with the magic of the Olympics. You know, there's like some strong Alla Jones vibes. Mm. I'm surprised that he didn't sing in that. Yeah, I mean it was it was schmaltzier than the snowman, wasn't it? And it was it was less entertaining too. The official <laughs> the official Wenlock and Mandeville film. Um, yeah, I mean, they were, I wonder if it's worth also mentioning that they these were, like, massively derided, these two mascots. Like, oh, yeah. like you know, there was a an almost uniform culture around the Olympics that you just had to praise everything that was going on to do with mm. it, which I think is also worth emphasising and reminding people that, like, mm. the way that they talked about it on the BBC was the way they talk about the fucking Queen and the royal family. Like, there's mm. not there's not a hint that there might be anything problematic or debatable here. Mm. This is an unalloyed no good. <laughs> this is an unalloyed good for fucking everybody. Mm. And maybe the one exception to that, ironically, was the year or so before when they announced the Olymp- the mascots. Everyone just went, "What the fuck are these things?" <laughs> <laughs> that was the one bit of criticism that actually was allowed. It was permitted in the public discourse. Yeah, they're they're just hideous. Yeah, I think is the issue. <laughs> but yeah, that's kind of me. Cool. Yeah, let's let's end on that note. I yeah. think, and let's hope that Wenlock doesn't lock us up. We'll yeah. Be-